Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Best of the Left podcast. We have a big show lined up for you today with clips from the Rachel Maddow show, TPM TV, The Young Turks, Bill Moyers, C-SPAN, Cedar on Sundays, Randy Rhodes, Dahlia Lithwick, and The Mike Malloy Show. We got breaking news from J.R. Jackson. What's going this on? This is fresh from the control room. Uh-huh. I was surprised uh, when, when you didn't come with this breaking news. And then Dave came with me and said, well, wait a second. What about the real breaking news? All right. Down goes Carl Rove. What? 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 What's the matter with you two? What are you talking about? Black Man, Black? I just checked the wires. Do, like, do I have to do everything? Down goes Carl Rove. Down goes Carl Rove. Okay, wait a minute. What? What? Wait a minute now. Wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. wait, wait. Was this like a prank fax? What do you have? I don't know, but I'll tell you what. If you're if you're not playing, then all of a sudden Set this is going to be the greatest show. Set to leave the White House on oh August Oh, my God. 31st. It's true. Carl wow. Rove set to resign end of August. Wow. Ladies and gentlemen. We got him. Out of nowhere! Out of nowhere! Out of nowhere! <laughs> How do you like them apples? What? How the hell did that happen at six o'clock in the morning? Tommy Thompson. You talking about Tommy Thompson? <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, how's that for that a startling, startling Monday morning uh, revelation? Car- I'm going to read just the right off the Associated Press here. Carl Rove, President Bush's closest friend. Sorry, President Bush's close friend and chief political strategist plans to leave the White House at the end of August, joining a lengthening line of senior officials heading for the exit in the final one and a half years of the administration. And some people criticize us uh, for saying, "Hey, what are you having all these uh, crazy theories on on, on why Carl Rove's leaving? It's not right. You don't have anything to back it up." But so you know what? what? If you give a BS reason like, "Hey, I'm going to spend more time with my family." Okay, well, then you open yourself up to conjecture. I mean, out of nowhere, with no hint at all, you say, I'm going to resign in a couple of weeks. I don't have any other plans. I don't have another job. I don't have a book offer. I'm not working on another campaign. I'm not going to Wall Street. I'm going to go spend more time with my family. You're sending out a message, do, 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 there's trouble. And we, and I'm resigning because there was trouble. Uh, so you know what that opens up to? Conjecture. And we don't know. We, you know, obviously we, I'm we're not you, inside the White House, and we don't have he a wants, like. He Jeff wants Gannon to hang out with the popular kids, and Bush isn't popular anymore. It might be just that simple. Now, if it was Larry Flint, who's got the dirt on him, and he has to resign, oh, that would that, be beautiful. That would be the greatest thing in the whole wide world. <laughs> that would be not, not awesome. the greatest. There's much greater things. Now, the thing is, actually, you know what would be greater is if they actually indicted him and got him for all the terrible things that he's done. Right. That would be nice. Okay, for all the laws that he's broken. That would be a thousand times better then than this. Then prosecuted him, convicted him, put him in jail. Right. That would be a thousand times better than some silly sex scandal. But the thing is, we don't have the Democrats with the spine who could do that. So we'll settle for life. I, I will say, we also don't have Republicans with the spine. Breaking the law is breaking the law. It, doesn't matter what party you're part I know, but I gave up on the Republicans a long, long time ago.
driving lane with my hands in my pocket, tingling a wish coin that I stole from finding out was riding on the cares in the world. When I get older, climbing up on the back porch fence just to see the dogs running with the ring and a question, and my shivering voices singing through a crack of window. All right, our next guest is a uh, is a guy that Carl Rove described as a far left wing uh, liberal who'd been drinking too much swamp water. Uh, sounds like my kind of guy. Welcome to the program, Jim. Good to be with you. Now, uh, tell me something. Uh, as the author of uh, two books on Carl Rove, uh, Bush's Brain and The Architect, are you surprised uh, by Rove's uh, revelation that he's going to be resigning at the end of August? No, I mean it's in my my view it's it's typical of Carl. He, there's he's done all the things that interest him and that he wanted to do and the other ones he wanted to do he couldn't accomplish. So he can no longer help the president, so he's going to go help himself. He's going to cash in. He's going to be, you know, an author. I think his first act as he moves back to Texas will be to set down and try to write his own version of the first big book about what happened inside the Bush administration? He's, you know, he's got a he's he's going to try and clean up his place in history and the administration's place in history. And I think he'll want to have that coming out about the time Bush leaves office or shortly thereafter. And so basically, what we're looking at is uh, we're just looking at a rat uh, jumping off a sinking ship type. Well, history doesn't record rats swimming towards sinking ships. Let's put it that way. And on top of that, I think. You know, Carl is radioactive. He, he, uh, the Republicans don't want him around because of all of the negatives attached to him. And, you know, he's going to be probably called back before Congress and eventually may have to testify. Uh, we're told that there are still federal investigations in which he's being looked at. And, uh, I, I, you know, I think it's time for him to get out of Washington. He's, he's, he's drawing uh, a lot of flies. And I, th- I think they're detracting from whatever there is to, to be accomplished by this administration. Administration and 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 frankly, there's nothing left that can be done. They failed on immigration. They failed on social security reform. There's there's nothing left in their domestic agenda, and there's nothing left for Carl to do except muck up 2008. So he's got to go. And, and so, uh, where where does this leave Bush? I mean, if George Bush has relied on this guy for so, I mean, does Karen Hughes rush over to the White House and uh, basically just hug uh, um, uh, George Bush for the next 18 months? <laughs> Well, he he's he's going to need somebody to hug him because there aren't very many people around to do that. Uh, you know, Karen is Karen has been marginalized these days as well. She went off to do her State Department thing and didn't do that very well. But yeah, she went uh, out to uh, help bridge relationships between the United States and the Islamic uh, world. Is that yeah? Correct? She's and she spent about six months doing that, and I think made two appearances that were such horrendous flops that they shut down the program. So, but you know, the president uh, the president is the lamest of all lame ducks. He has has a horrible war. He has no domestic agenda. He has an angry public, and he has economists saying that the uh, that the economy, even though it looks good, is running on fumes and is on the verge of some sort of great catastrophe. You know, so um, I, I think this president is in a very, very lonely spot. Uh, now, you got you don't have an office pool or something. Whether or not if uh, Bush himself will resign in the next couple of months, just I know, you know, I, I'm just going to cash it. I don't, and I don't think he will. I think he'll. No, I don't. Think I think he'll, he'll ride it out to the end. Uh, so, uh, what do you think? You know, as jo- as Carl Rove uh, goes back to Texas, and presumably, 
he'll get hired by some uh, major right-wing think tank, uh, basically get on that uh, right-wing uh, Social Security, that uh, the right-wing dole, as it were. Uh, but he's going to write this book to... Um, to uh, attempt to revise uh, history before it, begin, uh, it gets written. Wh- what do you perceive is his uh, genuine legacy, and what do you think that he is going to most focus in on to try and put in the best light? I think that Carl has two legacies, and, and the, the primary one is, is his willingness to do anything to win to say or do or bend the rules or break the rules to destroy people, destroy their lives. And whatever is necessary, he will do it if it means victory. And the collateral damage, the things that happen along the way, uh, he doesn't think about. And and this is one of the things that I think is transform American politics. It used to be it used to be enough to beat your opponent. Uh, Carl has to destroy them from the battlefield so they never rise again to even criticize him. And the other the other legacy that he has is the, is the uh, he has taken all of the institutions of our government that were that were created to serve the public to 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 help the constituencies and the taxpayers uh, who who pay their money into the government, Carl has turned those into massive political institutions to help support uh, political Republican candidates and and to accumulate more and more power. Everything is political. Everything is about accumulating political power, and that's going to be Carl's legacy. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you know, what 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 really astonishes me most about this administration is their capacity to make decisions, massive, important, major decisions that will affect the future of this country for years and years to come, not based on any type of policy reasoning, uh, reasoning but, but strictly on the political implications. I mean, it, it really is astonishing. I think, you know, everything, I think, from even whether it's this last FISA law, one of the things he said in, um, in the uh, Wall Street Journal as he was going, Rove said that he expects the uh, president approval ratings uh, to rise again. He said that in the past. Uh, that conditions in Iraq will improve. He said that in the past. But the one thing that he really has an ability to, to uh, impact, he expects the Democrats to be divided this fall over the battle over warrantless wiretapping. It's as if he basically um, uh, uh, d- developed the policy uh, uh, in terms of how we will spy on Americans, contrary to um, the Constitution, based upon what political implications it will have for the Democrats and their reelections uh, hopes. Everything, everything that he has done or planned or executed has been for those reasons, uh, for uh, to divide us as a country, to to divide us politically. Instead of instead of looking for common ground, Carl looks for the the, the fifty percent plus one vote uh, to to win the elections, and and uh, that's that's the great tragedy of everything that Carl has done. But look, Sam, the thing you have to remember about this guy is that he is pathological. There's a part of Carl that disconnects from reality, and he has. He has a happy little reality in his head. Uh, I've often characterized him as as the fella sitting next to you on a 747 with all four engines out, plummeting it to the ground, and he's giving you a statistical explanation how some of us might survive the crash. And if you look at if you look at the things he said prior to the 2006 midterms, uh, he was in absolute denial. He had he had his reality that he was connected to, and, and this is what has helped to sustain Carl through all these years. And sometimes, if you believe in your own reality uh, hard and true enough and long enough, it becomes true. But many times, it all comes crashing down around you. The irony is that he seems to have really 
really destroyed the Republican Party, I believe, for 20, 30 years. I mean, uh, there was a story out today uh, uh, just how difficult it is now where you've got uh, half a dozen uh, or three or four challenges to uh, Republican sitting senators. Uh, they're going to be primary challenges. And uh, maybe a dozen or so primary challenges to uh, 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 congressional Republicans, all coming from uh, the base who is rabid. And they're going to go after people like Chuck Hagel and uh, Lindsey Graham. Uh, and they're essentially devouring their own party. Well, and, and you're correct to use the word term, the, the term irony, because that was, uh, that was Carl's ultimate goal was to establish a long-term Republican dynasty that would, that would, uh, govern our country for the next 30 or 40 years. And instead, what he's done, as he has divided the country so deeply and wrought such disasters in terms of policy, that he may be setting up a Democratic dynasty for the next 20 or 30 years. And he's created infighting within his own party, as you suggest, that, that some of the more moderate candidates are are going to be challenged in the primaries by uh, more radical conservatives. It's going to be interesting to see if he's willing to uh, publish that book before or after the uh, 2008 elections, which I think is going to show uh, just how uh, it, it, what kind of dire straits the Republican Party has, has found itself in. I think I think he will publish it after the the elections are concluded, unless he's got a lot of it written already, which which would not surprise me, given his prolific nature for reading and absorbing information. All right. Well, uh, Jim Moore, uh, co-author of Bush's Brain, and the architect Carl Rove and the Dream of Absolute Power. Thank you very much uh, for joining us. Closing thoughts now on politics. When Karl Rove announced his resignation from the White House earlier this week, he got some rave reviews. Here's a sample circulating on the Internet. We should be congratulating Karl Rove for a long, successful run. This is a guy who elected a president twice, uh, who's known as one of the most brilliant political uh, activists of our time. If you've ever talked to him, he's almost got almost like a blinders on. He looks right in the, in the eye and he talks faster than I do. Really <laughs> fast, right in your face, totally intent on you. And it's really like talking to a, a, a fire hydrant. He's not only the mastermind behind everything, he's the president's senior advisor. Boy genius, Bush's brain, the architect. Carl is, is brilliant, he is funny. Uh, and he's a passionate advocate. Karl Rove is a superstar. He is very insightful. He's a great friend to the president, and he's also a very broad thinker. He is one of the more intelligent people that I know. He's very quick-witted. Uh, he's got a great sense of humor, and the president will miss him. But generally, where there's brains, there's Rove. There is, of course, more to be said. What struck me about my fellow Texan Karl Rove is that he knew how to win elections as if they were divine interventions. You may think 
God summoned Billy Graham to Florida on the eve of the 2000 election to endorse George W. Bush just in the nick of time. But if it did happen that way, the good Lord was speaking in a Texas accent. Karl Rove figured out a long time ago that the way to take an intellectually incurious, draft-averse, naughty playboy in a flight jacket with chewing tobacco in his back pocket and make him governor of Texas was to sell him as God's anointed in a state where preachers and televangelists outnumber even oil derricks and jackrabbits. Using church pews as precincts, Rove turned religion into a weapon of political combat, a battering ram aimed at the devil's minions, especially at gay people. It's so easy, as Carl knew, to scapegoat people you outnumber. And if God is love, as rumor has it, Rove knew in politics to bet on fear and loathing. Never mind that in stroking the basest bigotry of true believers, you coarsen both politics and religion. At the same time he was recruiting an army of the Lord for the born-again Bush, Rove was also shaking down corporations for campaign cash. Crony capitalism became a biblical injunction. Greed and God won four elections in a row, twice in the Lone Star State and twice again in the nation at large. But the result has been to leave Texas under the thumb of big money with huge holes ripped in its social contract and the U.S. government in shambles, paralyzed, polarized, and mired in war, debt, and corruption. Rove himself is deeply enmeshed in some of the scandals being investigated as we speak, including those missing emails that could tell us who turned the Attorney General of the United States into a partisan sock puppet. Rove is riding out of Dodge City as the posse rides in. At his press conference this week, he asked God to bless the president and the country, even as reports were circulating that he himself had confessed to friends his own agnosticism. He wished he could believe, but he cannot. That kind of intellectual honesty is to be admired, but you have to wonder how all those folks on the Christian right must feel discovering they were used for partisan reasons by a skeptic, a secular manipulator. On his last play of the game, all Karl Rove had to offer them was a Hail Mary pass while telling himself there's no one there to catch it. That's it for the journal. We'll be back next week. to today i want to review and we're going to do this now i know this is going to take me into about 17 after but i need to do this i want to review the gonzo story and the best way to do it is to take the testimony that we have and play it for you again uh, so that you understand why alberto gonzalez is being considered for impeachment okay or a special prosecutor in the senate here is uh james comey's testimony this was testimony that james comey gave back in may uh about a night that just freaked him out and this is why Alberto Gonzalez was questioned about this night. And Alberto Gonzalez chose to not tell the truth about it. Okay? Here's James Comey's rendition of the facts in this case. The Attorney General was taken that very afternoon to George Washington Hospital, where he went into intensive care and remained there for over a week. And I became the acting Attorney General. For that night was 
probably the most difficult night of my professional life, so it's not something I forget. Mrs. Ashcroft reported that a call had come through and that as a result of that call, Mr. Card and Mr. Gonzalez were on their way to the hospital to see Mr. Ashcroft. I told my security detail that I need to get to George Washington Hospital immediately. They turned on the emergency equipment and drove very quickly to the hospital. I got out of the car and ran up, literally ran up the stairs with my security detail. I was concerned that given how ill I knew the Attorney General was that there might be an effort to ask him to overrule me when he was in no condition to do that. And I immediately began speaking to him, trying to orient him as to time and place, time and, place. and try to see if he could focus on what was happening. And it wasn't clear to me that he could. He seemed pretty bad off. And Director Mueller instructed the FBI agents present not to allow me to be removed from the room under any circumstances. And I went back in the room. They came over and stood by the bed, greeted the Attorney General very briefly, and then Mr. Gonzalez began to discuss why they were there to seek his approval for a matter. And as he laid back down, he said, but that doesn't matter because I'm not the Attorney General. There is the Attorney General. And he pointed to me when I was just to his left. Uh, the two men did not acknowledge me. They turned and walked from the room. I responded that after the conduct I had just witnessed, I would not meet with him without a witness present. Uh, he replied, what conduct? We were just there to wish him well. <laughs> and I said again, uh, I, after what I just witnessed, I will not meet with you without a witness, and I intend that witness to be the Solicitor General of the United States. The program was reauthorized without us. Uh, without a signature from the Department of Justice attesting as to its legality. And uh, I prepared a letter of resignation intending to resign uh, the next day, Friday, March the 12th. I couldn't stay if the administration was going to engage in conduct that the Department of Justice had said had no legal basis. I simply couldn't stay. Okay, so that is the scenario. You have the uh, Attorney General of the United States in his ICU room, couldn't be oriented as to time and place, wasn't clear. And you have the acting attorney general, James Comey, whose testimony you just heard, calling the FBI because Alberto Gonzalez, the president's lawyer, and Andy Card, the president's chief of staff, come into the hospital holding papers, asking this compromised, incapacitated man to sign off on a program that the Justice Department considered to be illegal. James Comey testified that these were the facts on the ground in the hospital on that night uh, when Alberto Gonzalez and Andy Card showed up at John Ashcroft's bed in 2004 uh, trying to get an uh, incapacitated, uh, sick, sedated man to sign off on a program that no one in the Department of Justice would attest was legal. So now they call Gonzo back to testify about that night, because he had not told anybody about that night. And uh, here's our inspector questioning Alberto Gonzalez about that night. No, I want to move to the point about how can you get approval from Ashcroft for anything when he's under sedation and incapacitated for anything. May I continue the story, Ms. Uh, no, I want Con you to answer Senator, my question. Senator, obviously there was concern about, about uh, General Ashcroft's condition. Uh, and we would not have sought, nor did we intend, to, to, see, to 
uh, get any approval from General Ashcroft if, in fact, he wasn't fully competent to make that decision. But General, a there are no rules governing whether or not General Ashcroft can decide. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling well enough to make this decision. But Attorney General Gonzalez, he had already given up his authority as Attorney General. And he Ashcroft could always, was no longer Attorney General. And he could always reclaim that. There are no rules While about... While he's in the hospital under sedation? Again, again, we didn't know... We knew, of course, that he was... That he was that he was ill, that he had surgery. Not, not making any progress here. Let me go to another topic. He kept asking him over and over again. You know, he's freaking sedated. He's incapacitated. What did you go there for? Uh, and he said, oh, well, you know, we didn't get him. To, we weren't going to ask him to sign off on anything, okay? Here's Sheldon Whitehouse from Rhode Island asking Gonzalez, well, when you went there, what was in your hand? Flowers, a card. When you went into the attorney general's room, at the hospital that night, what document did you have in your hand? I had in my possession a, 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 uh, a document to reauthorize the program. Where is it now? I, I'm assuming the document is, is at the White House. It was a White House document. And it would be covered by presidential records laws? It is a White House document. And then the question, why would FBI agents not allow you and Andrew Card to be alone with the Attorney General? What's so nefarious about going there to wish him well, then? Director Mueller was involved that evening. Do you consider Director Mueller to be reasonable, sober, and level-headed? Yes. He's a former Deputy Attorney General, former United States Attorney? Yes. Why would he tell FBI agents not to allow you and Andy Card to throw the acting attorney general out of the attorney general's hospital room. I don't know that he did that, and I have no, I, I, I can't respond to your question. I'm not Director Mueller. We have direct testimony that he did. You can't, is there any series of events that led up to this that would so provoke him as I was, to? I wasn't aware of that comment until I read Mr. Comey's testimony. Is there some background to this that would help elaborate why he would have that feeling? I mean, when the FBI director considers you so nefarious that FBI agents had to be ordered not to leave you alone with the stricken attorney general, that's a fairly serious challenge. Wednesday, July 25th, 2007. You know, back on May 2nd, in one of our first episodes of TPM TV, we asked the question, why can't President Bush fire Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez? And our answer was, he can't. And the reason he can't, the reason he couldn't then, the reason he can't now, is because as soon as he fires Alberto Gonzalez, or even lets him resign, he'd have to appoint a new Attorney General. And there's no way the Senate is going to confirm another Attorney General who's going to keep all the cover-ups in place like Alberto Gonzalez's. Now yesterday, Alberto Gonzalez went up to the Senate for another round of hearings, and it was such a train wreck, so many lies he was caught in, so much ridiculousness, so many things he couldn't remember. I think it just proves out, again, this guy is un 
fireable because no one else could stay in office after a performance like this. We've got a montage here of some of the ugliest moments. Take a look. What keeps you in the job, Mr. Attorney General? That's a very good question, Senator. How I accept many responsibilities. How did you approve for firing? I think on that, the list that was presented. No, no, total. How many names have you approved for firing? You mean total? For total. cause, not for cause? To, I'd have to get back to you on that. Please help us understand how you didn't mislead the committee. Was the very program, sir, the very program that you said there was no dissent to. How can you say you haven't deceived the committee? Well, I, I stand by what I said to the committee. This, this press conference is one that I, I would like to look at the question. I would like to look at my response. Um, okay. We're going to bring it up to you right now, sir. Okay? Good. What I, in fact, here in the press conference, I did misspeak, but I also went back and clarified you, it with you, the reporter. You did misspeak? Yes. I guess I'm very surprised at your, your conclusion that I may have been misleading. I, I, I find your statement surprising. I can understand um, the, the confusion or concern about my prior statements. But I went back and clarified it with a reporter. When was that? And which, what was the reporter's name? The Washington Post. Two days later. Dan Egan was a reporter. I clarified my statement two days later with the reporter. What did you say to the reporter? I did not speak directly to the reporter. Oh, wait a second. You did not. Okay. What did your spokesperson say to the reporter? I don't know, but the, but oh, I, I was oh, told the well, spokesperson minute, to go back sir, and clarify my respect, statement. And if, what did that spokesperson say? Tell me now. How do you clarify this? <laughs> I don't know, but I'll, but I'll find How out. How do you get clarify? You. Mr. Chairman, I think we have to pursue this at some point because this is I've never heard anything quite like this how can you get approval from Ashcroft for anything when he's under sedation and incapacitated there are no rules governing whether or not General Ashcroft can decide I'm, I'm, I'm feeling well enough to make this decision but Attorney General Gonzalez he had already given up his authority as Attorney General and he Ashcroft could always, was no longer Attorney General and he could always reclaim that there are no rules while about he's in the hospital under sedation again Again, we didn't know. We knew, of course, that he was that he was that he was ill. That he had surgery. Not, not making any progress here. Let me go to another topic. I know it's ugly, but it got even worse. Take a look. I would like to bring to your attention a May Fourth, two thousand six, memorandum. And this one is signed by you. What on earth business does the Office of the Vice President have in the internal workings of the Department of Justice with respect to criminal investigations, civil investigations, and ongoing matters? As a gentleman, I would say that's, that's a good question. Senator, I, I don't, I, sitting here today, I, I don't know the answer to that question, which, I, which, which uh, I don't know whether or not that in fact has happened, so I, wanna, I would like to find out because I am certainly committed to ensuring that we're smart. Let me try to get more information about this. I really don't know anything. I need, to, I need okay. on its face. I must say, sitting here, I'm troubled by this. Yep. I would think so, but I don't believe so, sir. We have been looking at this issue because I, I am concerned about it. Not, not that I'm aware of. With respect to this memo, quite frankly, uh, I'd, I'd have to look at it. And uh, I would be concerned about, about inappropriate access to ongoing investigations. 
something's rotten in Denmark. I would thank you for the opportunity for me to look at that. Who sent you to the hospital? Senator, what I can say is we'd had a very important meeting at the White House over one of the most... I didn't most ask that. I didn't ask... Did you discuss the meeting? I'm answering your question, Senator, Who if sent I could. You? I'll, I'll just say that, that the Chief of Staff to the President of the United States and the Council of the President of the United States went to the hospital on behalf of the President of the United States. Did the President ask you to go? We were there on behalf of the President of the United States. I didn't ask you that. Did I the understand. President ask you to go? Senator, we're there on behalf of the President of the United States. Why can't you answer that question? That's the answer that I can give you, to, Senator. Well, can you explain to me why you can't answer it directly? Senator, again, we were there on, a, on an important program for this president on behalf of the President of the United States. I asked you a question, and you refused to answer it. Senator, if, why? If, I'll go back. If, if I can answer the question, well, uh, I will that. answer the question. Did the vice president send you? And, Senator, we were there on behalf of the president. Did you talk to the vice president about it? We were there on behalf of the president. Uh, it's almost an Alice in Wonderland situation. I think you've misunderstood my response, Mr. Chairman. We were there on behalf of the, if I can, if, I'd be happy to take back your question if we can respond to it well. Let's see if somewhere, somehow, we can find a question you'll answer. I, I have no specific recollection as to this, this particular case, but, but, I, but I can tell you, we have a very detailed process where hours are spent by lawyers including the U.S. Attorney, our Capital Case Review Unit, who then made recommendations I'm not, I'm to the Deputy Attorney General. I'm not General. interested in that. I'm interested in an answer to my question. If you don't know, if you don't remember... I don't, I don't, it, it, I don't wait, wait a minute, I'm not finished asking you the question. If you don't know or you don't remember what happened when you stood on a decision to have a man executed, that's what you're saying. I have no specific recollection. I do not find your testimony credible. I don't trust you. You ain't shit, man. Your story's a joke. You should package it with a lot of smoke and six feet of rope. Stay awake, little misfit. Her lips wet a very particular mischief. Sis, wiggle an index if your lips lit. There are three huge things you can do to help support the show, but they only take a few seconds. Leave us a great customer review in the iTunes Music Store, dig the show on dig.com, and every month you can vote for the best of the left at podcastalley.com. Find links to all three of these most important sites on the right-hand side at bestoftheleftpodcast.com. Thanks for your support. One of your last of a fixer up than my last tour. Crest symbol act to the milky wit of today's youth smoke chuckle out. Next couple on a house, next couple on a couch, swapping social coma ramps, phobia for soldier doubts, jokes and corporate mobile bands, motor mounts, the key to open is closure. Pussy plus yay, she hid in a broken toaster and later wake neighbors over chemical flavor to fuck sickly. Attorney General Gonzalez testified before the Judiciary Committee and his inability to answer simple and straightforward questions was just stunning. The Attorney General took an oath to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Instead, he tells the half-truth, the partial truth, and everything but the truth. And he does it not once and not twice, but over and over and over again. His instinct is not to tell the truth, but to dissemble and deceive.
Not only that, but this week he contradicted his prior statements, he contradicted the sworn testimony of Jim Comey, and he contradicted a letter written by former Director of National Intelligence, John Negroponte. I asked him back in February 2006 at a judiciary hearing whether there was any dissent over the Terrorist Surveillance Program, TSP. He swore that there was not. Then in May of this year, I asked Jim Comey about dissent about classified programs, and he told a story that shocked the country. Virtually the entire leadership of the department was prepared to resign in March 2004, and the Attorney General swore to us that there was no dissent. We then pressed the Attorney General on Tuesday about the apparent contradiction. He testified under oath that the internal dissent at the Department of Justice was not about the TSP and suggested that the purpose of the emergency meeting with the so-called Gang of Eight on March 10, 2004 was not about the TSP. Both of those statements appear to be false. We know now that the emergency meeting was about the TSP. We know from senators who were there, and we know from a letter from John Negroponte. It's in black and white. And these are just the latest in a series of troubling misstatements by our chief law enforcement officer. He testified that he hadn't talked to witnesses about the U.S. attorney investigation, but Ms. Goodling testified that she had a conversation with the attorney general that made her uncomfortable. He also testified in 2005 that there were no abuses of the Patriot Act. We have now learned that when he made those statements, the Attorney General knew about a number of failures to protect rights under the Patriot Act. Enough is truly enough. Not for us, not even for the Senate, but for the 90,000 employees of the Justice Department and for 300 million Americans who need, at the very minimum, an Attorney General who can tell the truth. For months, we have seen the Department of Justice unravel like a ball of yarn. And what we have seen has been terribly disturbing. <clears throat> I have not seen anything like it from a witness in the 27 years that I have been in Congress. The de this Department of Justice is one that puts emphasis on political loyalty rather than upholding the rule of law. This department is one that fires by all accounts, some of its most talented employees, and then is unable to give an explanation as to why. And at the helm of this Department of Justice is a man who has potentially misled Congress and the American people time and time again. We simply cannot stand for this any longer. The Attorney General is meant to be the chief law enforcement officer of the land. He must be a person of truth and candor and integrity. The record, which grows day by day, is making it clear that the Attorney General is not such a person. Now, obviously, the Attorney General cannot investigate himself. That's why the four of us have signed a letter to Paul Clement, the Solicitor General, and also Acting Attorney General in matters where Gonzalez has recused himself. We ask that he appoint a special counsel, someone of unimpeachable integrity, ability, and experience to investigate the Attorney General. We ask that that person come from outside the Justice Department so there will be no conflicts of interest, real or apparent.
We have also talked to Senator Leahy, who is, in his usual careful, considerate way, giving the Attorney General some extra time for his statements. But he believes our process and what he is doing with giving the Attorney General a week and then talking to the Inspector General, the two are dovetailing with one another and are supportive of one another. We also have the support of Leader Reed in what we are asking for. We had all hoped that it wouldn't come to this, but we simply cannot let this abuse of power continue unchecked. Senator Parks. from the Young Turks. You're listening to the Best of the Left podcast. Americans of all stripes believe that we deserve an attorney general who will not allow the politicization of the judicial system, who will not fire attorneys based on partisan reasons, who will respect the laws of privacy and be forthright about them, and last, who will be forthright and honest with the American people in the United States Congress. Unfortunately, we do not have an attorney general that can perform that function at this time. That was Congressman Jay Inslee speaking today at a press conference announcing Uh, a a resolution calling for uh, an investigation into whether impeachment proceedings should be brought against the Attorney General. Congressman Inslee joins me now live by phone from Washington, D.C. Congressman Inslee, thank you so much for joining us. You bet. Nice to hear your voice. Um, Nice to have you back on the show, I should say. Um, Why did you decide that uh, you should be the one to lead the charge for impeaching Alberto Gonzalez, and why now? Well, I don't claim any uh, sort of a divine enlightenment on this amongst my colleagues, but I have served as a prosecuting attorney, and I think that gives you, when you serve in that function, uh, respect of how important it is to maintain the integrity of the judicial system, how important it is to keep politics and partisanship out of decisions about who is prosecuted and who is not. And when you serve as a prosecutor, as I have, and as six of the other members who joined me today in this press conference, you recognize how once people lose trust in the system, if it does become politicized, uh, it's just difficult to have a judicial system that people consider fair. And so I have a particular, uh, I think, recognition of the importance of having a, an independent judiciary that truly is nonpartisan. And we have, I think, abundant evidence that this attorney general uh, has ignored that and, and allowed the firing not just of one, not two, but you know maybe seven or eight attorney generals who had the temerity to refuse to conduct false prosecutions. Hmm. And I think it's important to note too that you know we happen to be Democrats, but the people who we are protecting here were Republicans. These were all Republican uh, appointees, uh, assistant attorney generals who were fired because they would not. Uh, do the political bidding of the White House. And so that's why so many Republicans are upset about this, as well as Democrats. So I think it's a bipartisan concern, 
and people were very upset about it, I know, across the country. Is there anything that uh, Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez could do, short of resigning, um, that, that could restore your confidence in him, that could make right some of the things that you see uh, as having gone so wrong? I, I just don't believe so. Uh, he permitted this abuse of justice to go on for way too long, and I think it would be, uh, you know, perhaps personally beneficial for him to be show a little contrition, which, mm. he, has, which he has shown none of. But I don't think it will restore the integrity of the system. Uh, the only thing that will is a new attorney general. Now, I, I want to say, though, that our resolution does give him due process. We, we call for an, our resolution calls for an investigation of this, a deliberate, uh, judicious investigation, and the attorney general would have due process. He can come in and state his piece and put evidence in, a due process that he did not afford to the attorney generals who he fired. So uh, this is not; these are not articles of impeachment themselves. They are the start of a process that would be very judicious and, and careful in, in providing the House the information that it needs to make this decision. But it's the only way to get to the truth here. The president has stonewalled this uh, every way he can. He's refused to allow people to testify. He said that he will not allow, he will not, uh, and this is the catch-22, he says he will not allow the prosecutors to pursue a contempt citation of Congress for the failure to respond to subpoenas. Well, he thinks he has this checkmate over the democratic process, and that's very dangerous. So I think if the president is going to try to hide the truth behind a claim of executive privilege, we are going to insist on finding the truth through the responsibility of an impeachment inquiry, and I think that's our constitutional uh, obligation. Um, let me also ask for your reaction to the letter that was released today from the National Intelligence Director. The White House had promised that this letter was going to be coming. They, they clearly see this as uh, their best defense of Alberto Gonzalez. The letter, uh, as best as I can tell, says um, that the uh, under the... Uh, I guess uh, the National Intelligence Director's auspices. He's, he can state, he can say that Alberto Gonzalez wasn't lying, but he can't explain why Alberto Gonzalez wasn't lying because to do that would be to disclose classified information. So we just have to take their word for it. That's how I read it. How did you receive that? I, I actually have been uh, tied up in children's health insurance in this issue. I haven't had a chance to look at that letter yet. Mm -hmm. uh, but what I can tell you is, is that this latest dust up about what happened in the hospital conversation is just one of multiple, multiple distortions and deceptions by this attorney general. When the story came out about the uh, firing the attorney generals, what he allowed to first be told, he told us that these was, were performance-related issues, mm. that, that he let us believe that these were incompetent boobs who somehow had dropped the ball in prosecutions. Turned out that was a gross distortion of the truth. All of them had had good performance evaluations. John McKay, a Republican in Seattle, uh, was seen as a very, very competent person of great integrity, and he was fired. And then they tried to defame him by saying, well, it was a performance-related issue, hogwash. So there's one. Second, then he tried to tell us that he wasn't involved in this decision as well, at all, and then, which is just unbelievable to begin with, and his, uh, uh, his staff you know, burst that bubble uh, in, in short order. Then he tried to tell us that there was no dispute in his department about the legitimacy of this intelligence-gathering information. Turns out this was a raging civil war in the department, mm -hmm. and the number one guy who was responsible for it, James Comey, refused to sign off on this. Uh, that was bogus. Uh, fourth, he told us uh, uh, that there had been no abuses of the law, 
And shortly thereafter, actually six days before his testimony, he had an FBI memo on his desk uh, referring to multiple uh, uh, failures to follow the law in regard to this intelligence gathering information. So, you know, if he can squirm his way out of one of these, there's no escape from the fact, and it is sad but true, that the Attorney General of the United States, I think, has not been forthcoming, has given us at best half-truths and at worst outright deception in the pursuit of, of his oath, and that is unacceptable in America. And I think Republicans understand that, independents understand that, Democrats understand that. And that's why you have had Republican senators uh, being outraged about his, his contempt for this process. He has treated this as some sort of video game that if he can escape using specific language. It's not a game. This is a serious abuse of constitutional privilege. Um, Congressman Inslee, I know that um, the head of the House Judiciary Committee, John Conyers, has kind of given a sort of deadline to the Attorney General. He said he has until Friday, till the end of the week, to reconcile his his testimony that appears to have been appears to be false, all of the falsehoods that you described there, to reconcile his prior testimony to make sense of it, or that he will face a perjury probe. Um, how does what you are doing in terms of uh, calling for an impeachment investigation, how does that uh, relate to John, what John Conyers has done thus far, and, and what are the logistics about how your um, impeachment investigation resolution uh, would go forward from here on out? Well, I respect all of my colleagues' efforts to pry loose the truth, uh, and in a perjury investigation, which is a criminal proceeding, could be one of them. But I really do believe an impeachment inquiry is a superior one for a couple reasons. Number one, this president has demonstrated his uh, contempt for this process and his willingness to pardon his political cronies to avoid the truth coming out. And even if this person was convicted of perjury, I think you could expect a pardon from the president, and you'd have this anomaly of the Attorney General of the United States having been convicted, still serving as Attorney General of the United States. So the president cannot issue a pardon for an impeachment if he was convicted in the Senate. The Constitution is very clear on this. In fact, it's interesting, the founders, the older I get, the more I respect these geniuses who started this democracy. These people thought ahead. They put a provision very specifically in in the Constitution that says that the president cannot pardon someone who's been impeached for the impeachment part of that. So this is a superior way to do it, and frankly, it's the only way to get this truth, because the president's going to claim to continue to claim this executive privilege, and this is the only way to get at it. And frankly, I just think, you know, this isn't an issue of wanting to you know, punish Alberto Gonzalez. It's not a personal matter. If he goes off to the sunset and retires somewhere, that's fine with me. This is a matter of protecting democracy. That is what is at risk. And the only way to protect that, I believe, is to have a new uh, top legal officer in the United States, or at least we ought to have an inquiry to find out if there's any excuse that we haven't thought of here for his, for his malfeasance. Congressman Inslee, have you had any uh, official response from the Speaker of the House, from Nancy Pelosi, or from any of the other uh, members of the senior Democratic leadership in terms of whether they're going to support you on this? We haven't, and I think what we wanted to do, this was a conscious decision to start this small, as a small select group of prosecutors. We had this event today with six prosecutors, uh, uh, two former attorney generals, uh, one state judge. We wanted to start this with people who have had experience in the judicial system and build from there. So people, we've had quite a number of people get on the bill today, and as time moves on and people have a chance to talk to their constituents at home this August, 
I think that the support for this will build uh, from all points of the compass. So we'll see what happens, but uh, I think this is the right thing for for the country right now. If people want to uh, support what you're doing, and I know that our listeners on Air America have been uh, pretty critical, I'd say, as a group of um, of the reluctance to pursue impeachment of other members of the administration uh, among the House leadership, uh, if, if our listeners want to support what you're doing, would be the right thing to do be to uh, call their member of Congress and ask them to support your resolution? Well, there's a rule against encouraging, uh, which is kind of a strange rule when you think about it, encouraging lobbying of Congress hmm. of, of my colleagues, so I can't advocate that. Ah. Um, but I, I can't, but I, I can't tell you that I respect democracy and Talking to one's members of Congress is part of the democratic process. So perfectly, I can well, share that with you. <laughs> I, I I hear you loud and clear, uh, Congressman Jay Inslee. Thanks for your leadership on this. Thank you. Thanks and for I'll the look work this far. You again. Indeed, thank you, Congressman Jay of difference in the lives of others. And during this time, I have traveled a remarkable journey from my home state of Texas to Washington, D.C., supported by the unwavering love and encouragement of my wife, Rebecca, and our sons, Jared, Graham, and Gabriel. Yesterday, I met with President Bush and informed him of my decision to conclude my government service as Attorney General of the United States, effective as of September 17, 2007. Let me say that it has been one of my greatest privileges to lead the Department of Justice. I have great admiration and respect for the men and women who work here. I have made a point as Attorney General to personally meet as many of them as possible. And today I want to again thank them for their service to our nation. It is through their continued work that our country and our communities remain safe, that the rights and civil liberties of our citizens are protected and the hopes and dreams of all of our children are secured. I often remind our fellow citizens that we live in the greatest country in the world and that I have lived the American dream. Even my worst days as Attorney General have been better than my father's best days. Public service is honorable and noble and I am profoundly grateful to President Bush for his friendship and for the many opportunities he has given me to serve the American people. Thank you and God bless America. Was not involved in, in seeing any memos, was not involved in any discussions about what was going on. That's basically what I knew as the Attorney General. I never saw the, I never saw documents. We never had a discussion about where things stood. Other, I, what I knew was that 
was that there was an ongoing effort that was led by, by Mr. Sampson, uh, vetted throughout the, through the Department of Justice. I'm not going to resign. I'm going to stay focused on protecting our kids. Ladies and gentlemen, we got him. Down goes Alberto Gonzalez. Down goes Alberto Gonzalez. <laughs> hey, you know what? I want to thank the Bush administration for continuing to announce these on early Monday morning, right when our show is on. <laughs> hey, doing us a big favor. I really appreciate it. Man, this is some big news. Gonzalez has gone down, and uh, New York Times is reporting it this morning. He will have a press conference later this morning. Gonzalez will to tell us about it. Apparently on Friday he called the president and told him, and the president uh, said, well, come on down to the ranch. I want to take you out to the lake. <laughs> hey, one of his nicknames for Gonzalez is Fredo. So uh, they had a talk, and the president, according to advisors, begrudgingly accepted Alberto Gonzalez's resignation, saying he's been so poorly mistreated by the Democrats. And earlier in a, in a press conference this month, Bush had said, Gonzalez has done nothing wrong. After all, he sent thousands of documents to the Congress. Is that not enough? Is it not enough? Well, now Gonzalez leaves the White House. Helicopters on rooftops, man. <laughs> They're all leaving. Carl Rove, Alberta Gonzalez, Dan Bartlett. Man, people are running out of there like it's Saigon. A political scandal is ripping through town. The polls are slipping and someone's going down. Gonzalez is gone, finally, but what took him so long to head for the door? And why now? Dahlia Lithwick is a senior editor at Slate Magazine. She's been on Gonzalez Watch for so long now that the Gonzometer, or should I say Gonzometer, at Slate had been pushed aside, shut down, forgotten, until today, <laughs> when maybe we'll have some more fun puns. Dahlia Lithwick joins us on the phone from Israel today. Dahlia, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Isaac. Thanks for having me. Um, so, wow, he's finally gone. Uh, just initial reactions from you. Uh, just 
you know, flabbergasted. Uh, it's worth pointing out that as recently as yesterday, that there have been sort of rumors all weekend uh, that they were looking at Chertoff, at Michael Chertoff, uh, head of Homeland Security, to replace him. And, and so there was something sort of bubbling up. But, you know, as recently as yesterday, the Justice Department spokesman was denying that he was leaving. And when he was asked point blank, is a Gonzalez departure imminent, he said no. Now, we now know it wasn't imminent because it had already happened on Friday. Uh, so yet again, in the festival of word parsing that has become the way we talk about the Justice Department, I guess uh, they were being truthful in some universe. But, you know, I think it's, it's fair to say, and I've heard reported, that the Justice Department was as taken aback by this as the rest of us. Uh, well, as you say, his resignation did seem to come out of nowhere, and you at Slate had, had sort of given up on Gonzalez ever stepping down. Why? And you asked today in your post, why now? Why do you think now? You know, this is the place where we pull on our tinfoil hats uh, and, and try to sort of ferret out some conspiracy. And, and I, I, you know, my best answer is we don't know. Uh, I think some of the things that we sort of threw at the wall today at Slate in no particular order uh, were the following. One, uh, we always believed, and I, I still believe, that one of the things that Gonzalez did so well was serve as a sort of a proxy punching bag for Karl Rove, mm. and that as long as, as, as sort of his uh, indiscretions and, and misstatements and missteps took the focus away from Rove, who was, you know, under our paranoid theory, always the architect of some of these uh, of these missteps, well, then Rove was in the clear, and so it certainly would make some sense if you believe that, that as soon as Rove had gone, uh, it made sense for Gonzalez to step aside. So I think that's certainly plausible. I, I also think there is something to be said, Isaac, for the argument that they wanted to leave both Gonzalez and Rove on their own terms and not on anybody else's. They certainly didn't want it to have the appearance that, you know, they were being hectored by, by the Congress or that, you know, the Congress had sort of claimed another head or scalp. So I think by by leaving now and not say a month ago after his dreadful uh, testimony in July, Gonzalez is able to say, "Hey, you know, I left at the peak of my game on my own terms." Do you think that's really uh, <laughs> that's funny? Because I mean, do you think that that really is, is going to take it all? Because it, it seems hard to interpret it that way. I mean, certainly, I feel that you know everybody who's looking at this is saying, "Well, he finally did leave because he'd been hectored." Is there any way to escape that that feeling? My, my own sense is that if the Democrats were to let this slide, the Democrats in Congress, and, and with that I include not just Democrats, but people like uh, Arlen Specter, Republican, who have been very, very, uh, I would say surprisingly vocal in their criticism of Gonzalez, if they were to let this whole issue slide away and forget the investigation and stop the inquiry into the U.S. attorney firings, into the NS program, then I do think that at the end of the day, you know, we're all going to forget who Alberto Gonzalez really was. So in some sense, I think the onus is on the Democrats in Congress to keep up the heat, even though the sort of, you know, public enemy number one has stepped off the stage. And so I think that certainly whether, you know, history remembers Gonzalez as having been, you know, a kind of ineffectual but basically well-meaning guy who, who took himself out of play or someone who was sort of hounded out because of his misdeeds really depends on, in some weird way, uh, Democrats continuing to hound him for his misdeeds. Well, and this is one of the main questions that I have, which is that, uh, and of course it's great that uh, Gonzalez is finally stepping down, uh, but this is a much larger problem than just Gonzalez, right? I mean, this is an institutional problem at the current Justice Department and in this administration, so that even once Gonzalez is gone, that doesn't solve the, the big underlying programs that, that uh, uh, rather problems that Democrats and the nation really have to address, right? 
I think that's right. And the mistake here is to say, and, and you're going to see it a lot in the sort of sound bites, oh, this, you know, he stepped down over the mishandling of the U.S. attorney's firing, or, you know, he was a bad manager and a bad PR guy, and now that he's gone, uh, the problems go away. That's certainly, I think, what the White House wants you to believe, but you're quite right. You know, underpinning all of this, there is just scandal after scandal that really we need to get to the bottom of. The U.S. attorney firings, in some sense, Gonzalez was never the architect of that. He was, if anything, a conduit for that. So who was the architect? What was the plan? Those things don't go away with Gonzalez. And it seems to me that, and I think this is your larger point, the way that the Justice Department itself has been sort of turned into an arm of the sort of Karl Rove, you know, permanent Republican majority view of government, is itself a scandal and needs to be looked at. You know, with the politicization of justice, you know, what's happened at the Civil Rights Division, what is this weird, freaky focus on vote fraud that's going on, all those things need to sort of be peeled away and examined. And I think you're right, corrected. And none of that has anything to do with Alberto Gonzalez. Well, let's talk about that for a moment. In what state does Gonzalez leave the Justice Department? I mean, you say today that uh, it's leaking lawyers uh, like a busted toilet, you say. And, uh, um, you know, and aren't there all kinds of positions uh, that are not filled at the moment, uh, et cetera, et cetera? I mean, the Justice Department itself, is it even functional at the moment? Well, you know, that's sort of the question. I think it's been limping along without a number two, without a number three for some time. There's been an awful lot of uh, U.S. attorneys who are serving double duty in their home state and at the Justice Department trying to sort of do some gap filling. Uh, you know, last week the head of the Civil Rights Division left. Uh, Bradley Schlossman left shortly before that, who's now been sort of caught up in, in some of the U.S. attorney uh, scandal and the politicization of the Justice Department scandal. So they are really dropping like flies. And, and you know, we sort of joke today in our Slate please, piece that, Clearly someone's answering the phone there, uh, but it's not clear at all what's happening beyond that. And I, and I will say, uh, in seriousness, that uh, having talked to a lot of folks who work at the Justice Department as this scandal or these scandals have unfolded, it was becoming manifestly clear that they were having a tough time doing their jobs, hmm. not just because of the lack of leadership, not just because of the scandal, but just because it felt like they were bumping along on three wheels. And I, and I do think that... Uh, one of the reasons that Gonzalez may have retired is that it had simply come to a point where it was untenable, you know, where U.S. attorneys and assistant U.S. attorneys were saying, I can't do my job, I can't stop, stand up in a court and talk about honesty and integrity uh, when the jury's laughing at me. Let's say then, and since you've talked to many people at the Justice Department about this, uh, let's say that you, Dahlia Lithwick, were at the uh, Senate confirmation hearings and uh, for whoever it is who comes along next... What would you think would you would be looking for in terms of the first thing that a new attorney general would need to do to get this department back and functioning again? Well, I floated this idea uh, just now in a Washington Post chat, and the more I think about it, the more I like it. But don't hold me to it, Isaac. But I think that it would go a long way to sort of repairing the damage to pull in someone like James Comey, who was, remember, the deputy attorney general under John Ashcroft. He was the guy who got overruled and overridden this horrible, you know, Ashcroft hospital bed scene. Um, he's someone who very visibly and publicly in his testimony this spring grieved for what had happened to the Justice Department. I mean, here is a guy who loves 
the Justice Department uh, and reveres it. And he was able to say in ways that I think even, you know, liberals and Democrats have not been able to say, this is what we stand for and, and this is what we don't stand for. And it seems to me uh, it would be an enormous act of good faith for the Bush administration to pull someone like Jim Comey, who really, you know, was a sort of foot soldier in the John Ashcroft Justice Department, but knew where the line was between, you know, what the president wants and what's illegal. Uh, and, and put him back into play. And instead of finding uh, a sort of Michael Chertoff character, someone who sort of uh, looks like more of the same old, same old, finding someone like a Comey or someone who at least has a very profound sense of, of what's gone wrong. Because I think that you need someone to stand up now and say, look, here's what's gone wrong and here's what I'm going to do different. Not clear to me that someone like a Michael Chertoff is capable of that. Well, uh, you know things are bad when we start pining after someone from the from the Ashcroft team. <laughs> um, uh, well, which which brings me to there. There is just uh, there is just one thing in your post today that I want to press you on, which is that you you mentioned the possibility of a recess appointment since Congress is out, and that maybe Bush will put in someone, uh, just you know, a friend of his, someone someone loyal um, that the Congress won't have to won't be able to uh, argue with. Uh, and you say, uh, but it seems to us that there must be a line, albeit a fine one, between Bush administration hubris slash cluelessness and utter insanity. And I want to ask, really? <laughs> Is that true? <laughs> like, I mean, somehow at this point it wouldn't surprise me if the Bush administration did something incredibly hubristic like that. Right. And and certainly that line may have been crossed with Scooter Libby's pardon. Uh, as you, as you said that just now, I thought, wait, what about Scooter Libby? How could I write that? <laughs> right. um, but, but, but I do think, I mean, in answer to the serious question, I think Bush did pledge today to Harry Reid, and then I think later in his statement, uh, in his press conference, that there would not be a recess appointment. It seemed that, to me that Bush was pretty unequivocal that uh, the current Solicitor General, Paul Clement, will serve uh, in the interim position of Attorney General until uh, Bush put someone forward in October. So it looks to me, and I think that there were reasons, you know, that we don't know behind the scenes that he and Harry Reid came to a deal that Bush was not going to try to pull a recess appointment, uh, even if you're probably right, and I was too optimistic when I said that was a, a place of insanity to which he would not venture. Uh, <laughs> he seems to have at least pledged now not to venture there. So very quickly, and lastly, uh, what uh, what can you tell us about, for instance, Paul Clement and uh, his what he might be like just as acting uh, AG, and then who do you think uh, if if Bush does not go the the uh, ideal route of Jim Comey or someone even better than that, uh, and it is Chertoff or someone, who do you think he might pick? Well, you know, I have a, an enormous regard for for Paul Clement, largely because um, uh, you know I, I cover the Supreme Court as my primary beat, and I've watched him as Solicitor General for years now, uh, and and I just think he's an enormously capable. Uh, and talented guy. And I've also had the sense, uh, sort of behind the scenes, that even though, you know, he's a lifelong conservative and certainly, you know, subscribes to the sort of larger uh, Bush agenda and the war on terror, that he is in that camp of, of Comey, and I'll even put John Ashcroft there, of people for whom there are legal lines that cannot be crossed. So uh, my own sense is that there's a reason that Paul Clement has sort of survived uh, the bloodletting at justice. I think it's because he's kind of stayed out of the, a lot of the political wrangling and, and also, I think, managed to sort of be quite principled uh, along the way. My sense of some of the other names that are, have been floated, uh, recognizing I think these are trial balloons, you know, I think they're floating names to see what we say, uh, you know, I still, I, I, I sort of still am not 
completely sure how I feel about Chertoff. Uh, you know, Larry Thompson would be an interesting candidate. Uh, he'd be the first African-American attorney general. Um, I'm going to hold my breath uh, for Jim Comey. I'm now hearing rumors about Orrin Hatch wanting the position. My, uh, my own sense, Isaac, is this is just going to get more interesting in the coming days and not less so. This show is produced with the help of the members of the Best of the Left community. You too can be a part of the show, and we would love your help. You can submit information about great clips you've heard, volunteer to help edit these clips for the show, or actually become an occasional guest producer. For more information, please visit the community at bestoftheleftpodcast.com. Michael Ratner, who is the president of the Center for Constitutional Rights, said today, quote, until we get rid of the entire cabal, which includes Bush and Cheney, that is engaged in torture, offshore prisons like Guantanamo, violations of the Geneva Conventions, warrantless wiretapping, there is little to celebrate in Gonzalez's resignation. Guantanamo continues, as does torture, wiretapping, secret CIA sites, rendition, illegal trials. Impeachment and prosecution of the authors and facilitators of these violations of fundamental rights is imperative. And our Democratic Congress has fallen down on the job, end quote. Why, of course. Don't, don't expect any Democrats. Democrats, they're not going to do anything. They just want to get elected. Marjorie Cohn, who's a professor at Thomas Jefferson School of Law and president of the National Lawyers Guild, said today regarding the... Uh, Resignation, quote, Alberto Gonzalez should not only be prosecuted for perjury for the false statements he made to Congress, he should also be tried under the U.S. War Crimes Act for spearheading a common plan by the Bush administration to violate the Geneva Conventions and the Convention Against Torture. And Jonathan Turley, a professor of constitutional law at George Washington University, said today, Gonzalez made a career as the enabler for George W. Bush, when they wanted to strip citizens of all the constitutional rights at the whim of the president, Gonzalez was there to say it was fine. When they wanted to engage in torture, Gonzalez was there with pen in hand. One can only wonder how much better this president would have fared if he had had a lawyer prepared to tell him that he did not have such Caesar-like qualities. But that's not what the Texas Mafia is about. George W. Bush is a cowardly, sick, twisted little drug-addicted megalomaniac. He needs people around him who will whisper in his ear and say, You're a great man, George, and we can make you greater. You're a great man, George. Sick son of a bitch. Just a few things I have to mention here at the end of the show. Um, the first is that... Uh, the enhanced version of the podcast just got a little bit more enhanced. Actually, it has been. If you've been listening to it for the last few shows that I've produced, I've taken the liberty of um, encoding the enhanced version 
at a higher uh, 128 kbps bitrate. Um, this is only going to be, well I'm only going to be doing it to the enhanced version and I'll be leaving the mp3 version alone. So if you have uh, issues downloading uh, the larger files or whatever, just um, stick to the mp3 version of the show. I also just wanted to uh, briefly mention donations. Um, if you enjoy the content that you get from this show um, and listen to it every week and want to keep it going, please consider uh, throwing a few bucks our way. Um, we have donation buttons on the sidebar of our website. Um, you can donate with PayPal or with your uh, Amazon.com account. And any donations we get go directly to uh, maintaining our website and paying for hosting fees. Um, so that's all I wanted to say about that. That's going to wrap it up for this episode of Best of the Left Podcast. Thanks for listening. And I will see you all next week. Black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor